Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. I invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. At the end of the reading, I'll conclude saying this is the Word of the Lord, and I invite you to say thanks be to God in respect for the fact that God has indeed spoken to us. The reading today is from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you, Pat. Everybody. So, Welcome uh, this morning. Good morning, church. Um, Before I can even get the memo out, the kids know the drill. So they're already exiting in masses, which again should free up some space if you're looking for a seat in the back. But K-1 and elementary can be dismissed over here, and then preschool over here. You should find your Kingdom Kids teachers over there and uh, have a great time uh, during during, uh, Kingdom Kids. You're going to miss out on a really light, fun passage, but, (laughs) but that's okay. We can, uh, we can have fun in here. So, Ian mentioned earlier, my name's Andrew, as I'm going to go ahead and grab a handheld. Is the, getting the, the thumbs up in the back there. So, all right, my name's Andrew, too. Uh, privileged to be one of the members here at the King's Church. Um, get the privilege to serve as a deacon. 
Um, and I'm thankful to be able to share uh, God's word with you guys this morning. Uh, difficult passages it may be, it's, uh, it's the word of God, it's helpful for us. Um, and I think, you know, I know God wants to show us um, things about him, things about his son, promises we can hold on to. Uh, so if you are just jumping into uh, this series with us, buckle up and make sure, go check out the King's Church podcast on Spotify, the previous sermons in this series. Um, but we are working through volume one of a study through the book of Revelation that will be continuing on and off for some time. And we've been walking through the first couple chapters of Revelation, right? And in these first couple chapters, they have featured letters uh, from Jesus revealed to John to deliver to seven different churches in Asia who have been enduring and facing uh, increasing persecution under the Roman Empire. Through the three previous churches we have studied, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, we have seen how Jesus addresses the true situations of these churches, both good and bad, he's not holding back, and how Jesus' words towards these churches, they have universal, timeless application to the church in all places, including right here today uh, for the King's Church in Lakeland, Florida. Now, to help us understand the situation we are walking into in Thyatira today, I want to talk a little bit with you, share with you a little bit about FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Lakeland Leadership Camp. Some of you guys were there, um, but this is a camp that Sydney and I had the privilege, my wife Sydney, had the privilege of uh, leading on campus at Southeastern University a couple weeks ago, about 300 um, and the vast majority of these students, or they are ultra competitive, right? They enter the week, and they have, most of them have one thing on mind, which is peak performance through athletic competitions or any competition they can get into. Uh, they want to show out during the pickup basketball and football, uh, during the free time. Uh, they want to have peak performance. The problem is, and we see right? They're not properly hydrating themselves so we can order to obtain what they say they want. Southeastern cafeteria, what do you think they make a beeline for? The Coke freestyle machine, which is the most dangerous invention of the 21st century. Looks a lot more appealing than a boring glass of water. These students have proper hydration preached to them throughout their lives by their coaches um, and, and by their counselors throughout the week, right? They have it preached to them, but they, and they know in order to reach peak performance, they have to have the proper fluids within them. Because it's Florida heat, it's a real deal, right? It's gonna, the heat's going to blaze down on them, and if they're not properly hydrated, they know they're not going to be able to do it, but they believe the lie, right? They believe the lie that they can run off cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper throughout the whole week and fully thrive and excel in competitions and performance. And many of them are able to do that for the first few days. But by Thursday, we start having piles of campers who are dehydrated or getting injured because they have not been consuming the right things throughout the week. You see, I believe these campers fully desired the things they had set out to do throughout the week on the competition field. The problem is, while they are seeking those good and noble things, they were filling themselves with stuff that destroyed their chances of actually getting there. Today, we're going to look at a church in Thyatira that has a similar problem, and it's a problem that we face as the church today, too, is that they were pursuing and even cultivating good and noble works for the kingdom of God, this church in Thyatira was, but 
Simultaneously, they were tolerating and ingesting sinful practices and postures that were actually destroying them from the inside out. And they were going to prevent them from the destination Jesus was calling them to persevere towards unless things changed. And Jesus loves this church too much not to reveal what's really going on within them. And he loves us too much, King's Church, to not do the same for us today. So today our main idea is Jesus reveals what is truly in our hearts, which either leads to our hardened defiance or repentant faithfulness. Jesus reveals what is truly in our hearts, which either leads to our hardened defiance or our repentant faithfulness. And we'll see how this plays out through three points, which are the evil we tolerate, the rewiring we need, and the reward we are promised. Let me pray for our time. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I just thank you for who you are, that you are in control and you hold all things together in our world, um, in our universe, in our church, Lord, and the audio systems, Lord, it's all that you hold together, God. They're not surprised by any of it, um, and you are faithful. And I just pray that as we look at your word, God, just limit any distractions to our hearts and minds that would keep us from clearly receiving what you have to say with us, say to us, God. Um, allow us to have ears to hear, eyes to see what your word is saying to us about who you are, about your son Jesus, and what does that mean for us, Lord? Um, so just let us be open to the examination your Holy Spirit has for us today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so some quick context on Thyatira. Uh, this was a city like some of the others we have studied, right, that they, they found their identity economically, and they were a commercial city. Uh, one thing Thyatira specialized in was having several trade guilds or unions, uh, specifically in areas of metals and fabrics. The only mention of Thyatira we really get elsewhere is in Acts 16, where Paul, on mission in Philippi, encounters Lydia, a native of Thyatira, who the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what Paul is saying, and she actually ends up getting baptized. Um, Lydia is identified in Acts as a seller of purple goods, uh, which is fancy dyes for fabrics, um, basically. Vocation would have been a crucial part of Lydia's identity and implied status because in order to work in the city of Thyatira, uh, you would have had to be a part of one of those guilds, those worker guilds or unions, and meet all the requirements of that guild. And there's more on that to come, but let's first start working through the text as we look at the evil we tolerate in verses 18 through 20. We're going to look through three movements within this point, the revealing look, the affirmation of works, and the, and the loving confrontation. So before Jesus describes the evil that has seeped into the church here, he defines an aspect of his glory that gives him the authority to call evil, evil. The beginning of this letter opens with a description of Jesus using elements that we, we already saw in John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1, if you might remember. Um, his eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet um, are that of, of burnished bronze. We see the same imagery in a heavenly vision in Daniel 10 that Ian referenced in our first week of the series, uh, where the man who appears in that vision unfolds the judgment of God against pagan nations. We'll see that same imagery of Christ's fiery eyes in Revelation 19 as the rider on the horse who judges and makes war. Jesus is described as having the gaze of ultimate deep discernment that is needed to judge the nations and also this church. His gaze will burn through any facades or exteriors and see what's really happening on the inside of this fellowship. And his discernments are backed up with the firm foundation of burnished bronze. 
which Pastor Ian taught us in week one, is the smelting together of copper and iron to produce something that is incredibly strong and enduring. See, Jesus' sermons about this church and each and every one of us are not just speculative or done from a distance, right? These are intimately and soundly discerning beyond what we are capable of even discerning about ourselves. Now let's see what Jesus discerns about the church in Thyatira as we look at the affirmation of works. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Jesus follows the pattern uh, in most letters he follows, which is beginning with a commendation or an encouragement of the church. Jesus commends Thyatira for actively growing in their commitment to, to cultivating love, faith, and service, patient endurance, right? He commends them for continuing to cultivate those instead of just banking on the works they had done in the past. You see, the Thyatirans weren't just here to chew yesterday's breakfast, right? In the midst of the Roman Empire that was turning up the heat on Christians, they were actively seeking to declare and display the good news of Jesus to the context the Lord had placed them in. Unlike the church in Ephesus that we studied a few weeks ago, right? They had forgotten their first love. Um, this, church, this church in Thyatira was strong in the love of Christ, evidenced in their works. Seems good at first. The problem is, is that while this church's aim was to make much of Jesus and patiently endure with him to the end of all death and suffering, that was their hope, that was their aim, the issue was they were tolerating sin in both their corporate and inner fellowship that unchecked was going to lead them to death, suffering the righteous judgment of the Son of God. But Jesus loves the Thyatirans enough to tell them what's truly in their hearts as we look at the loving confrontation. Jesus tells them, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we're going to unpack who this Jezebel figure is here in a second. I know we're all chomping at the bit to know about that. Uh, but for right now, let's just focus in on that the sin that Thyatirans are being seduced into tolerating is the same as which was called out in the Church of Pergamum last week, right? Practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. So we talked about earlier, right, how in order to work in, into the city of Thyatira, you had to be part of one of the trade guilds. Well... In order to be in the trade guilds, you would have had to participate in sacred festivals to the pagan gods of the land. This would have included eating meals in pagan temples and engaging in sexual acts with temple prostitutes. In order to participate in the local economy, be accepted by the powers that be, and in order to feel like this church had influence in their community, these Christians were pressed with a difficult decision to stand firm in obedience to Christ in the midst of external pressures to conform, or they could lower the bar of God's holiness to where they felt like their godly performance could atone for their sin, which they were going to be deceived into believing wasn't a big deal if they did that. And if we're being honest, we do the same thing the Thyatirans do here, or we're struggling with doing. We try to lower the bar of God's holiness in order to make us feel better about our sin, instead of confessing it to the Lord and others. We struggle with confessing. In his study, Gospel-Centered Living, Robert Thune, it's a great study, did it with the youth, like in 2019. Maybe two of you remember that, who are the OGs. Um, 
That's all right. These two, so Robert Thune, it's a great study. Highly recommend it. There's a teen version and adult version. Um, but Thune, out, he outlines two ways that we shrink the cross, which is to say that we lack in our understanding, application, or appreciation of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. These two ways we shrink the cross are through performing and pretending. Thune defines performing as minimizing God's holiness by reducing his standard to something we can meet, thereby meriting his favor. And he defines pretending as minimizing sin by making ourselves out to be something we are not. While remembering that Jesus, he does commend the church in Thyatira for their increasing works, we can't help but imagine and understand the temptation for those believers to look to their ongoing godly performance to justify the double life they were living. Jesus knew this. Uh, Jesus, you know, there's maybe saying, Jesus, we know this is wrong, right? We, but look, look what we're able to achieve. Look at the works we're able to do in this city, the influence we're able to have by doing these things. And that may sound good on the surface, right? That may sound great, but if we call ourselves Christians, we need to believe that we can never look to our works to justify or atone for our sin, past or present. To do so communicates that we don't need a savior because we believe that we are capable of meeting God's standard of holiness ourselves, which is foolish. If we are using the amount of spiritual insight we contribute in a, in a Bible study or city group, the generosity we are displaying towards others, or any other good Christian work as a reference point or a defense mechanism when we are confronted in sin in our life, it begs the question where our heart truly is in doing these works. Who are we worshiping in doing that? Are we trying to be something we are not, which is pretending? Which the church in Thyatira is clearly doing with the aid of a deceiving voice trying to convince them that what they were doing wasn't a big deal. And it wasn't a big deal to God, but that's not true, as we're going to see. Now let's talk about Jezebel, finally, right? It is most likely that the name Jezebel here is referring to her as a characterization rather than just reading off her birth certificate, right? Probably not her literal name, but a characterization. But this was a, probably a literal person, most likely, who claimed to be a prophetess, and she was encouraging the members of the church that it was acceptable to the Lord to participate in these idolatrous practices while also serving him. And this woman's directives, they're quite parallel to the Jezebel she is being characterized as from 1 Kings. Now, you guys, we had 1 Kings and CBR not too long ago. Um, and Jezebel in 1 Kings, she was one of the notoriously, uh, most notoriously evil women in Hebrew history. She was in a political marriage to King Ahab, who was one of the weakest kings in the history of Israel. And Jezebel used her power to urge and coerce the Israelites to worship the false gods of Baal and Ashtaroth alongside Yahweh, which also included sexual rituals inside pagan temples. She killed off all the prophets of the Lord to, so there were no voices remaining to God's chosen people to tell them that they were called to live a life of exclusive worship to, G, to Jehovah, the one true God who had rescued and delivered them. The spirit of Jezebel from the Old Testament, it seems to have resurfaced in the church a thousand years later. And this same Jezebel is attempting to silence any voices, trying to tell these believers that they had been set apart by Christ and called to live lives distinctive from the world around them in obedience to God. This Jezebel had convinced some in this fellowship that they could partake in everything their fellow Thyatirans did and still be faithful to Jesus. 
which was a lie from the pits of hell. They were trying to compartmentalize their life in the city from their life in the church, which results in a life of pretending. And you and I are susceptible, so susceptible, to still live lives of pretending. We can pretend that what we consume on the internet and in media doesn't affect the renewing of our minds in Christ. We can pretend that it's okay to use what we perceive as gray areas in Scripture as justification for what our flesh wants instead of asking the Holy Spirit to use the, uh, the Scriptures to perceive our hearts and show us the truth. We can pretend that the way we proclaim the gospel publicly doesn't have to line up with how we proclaim it privately in our homes and our relationships. Plain pretend when it comes to our sin for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus is a dangerous game to play. Because the reality is, whether we want to admit it or not, sin does something to us. It changes more than our behavior patterns. It shifts the object of our heart's worship from King Jesus to far lesser authorities. Jesus is either our everything or nothing to us at all. There's nothing in between. We cannot serve two masters. This is why Elijah calls Israel in 1 Kings 18 during the reign of Jezebel to stop wavering between two opinions of the false pagan gods and the one true God. And Jesus is about to draw that same clear line with the prophetess Jezebel and the church in Thyatira. And he's going to love them enough to show them both the consequences of their double-mindedness and the rewiring of their hearts that is needed, that comes not through changing behaviors, but through faith and repentance as we look at the rewiring we need in verses 21 through 25. So we're going to look at three rewirings we need here from the text. Rewired understanding of immorality, a rewired understanding of sin's consequences, and a rewired view of freedom. Let's look first at that rewired definition of immorality. Verse 21 reads, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You see, here Jesus is actually displaying grace to Jezebel as he has given her time to repent. He hasn't been quick to the trigger with his judgment as he rightfully could have been with her, but has waited on her to turn from her sin and turn to him. It is implied that this has been attempted to be addressed with her on previous occasions within the church, but she has rejected the call. This is not the case of this prophetess just being out of the loop or ignorant to her wrong. This is a hardened refusal to turn away from her immorality. And although her repent-worthy offense, it's labeled as sexual immorality, and we talked about how sexual immorality was certainly a component of the wickedness occurring here, but I think what Jesus is naming here actually implies something much deeper than just a physical act, as we kind of alluded to. He is talking about spiritual idolatry or adultery, which is an unfaithfulness to he as the groom of the church by those in this church as a part of the collective bride. It's rooted deep in their hearts. In the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as having committed adultery because of their idolatry. And there's actually 13 other times here in Revelation outside of chapter 2 that the same imagery of sexual immorality is used in a metaphorical sense to illustrate a holistic compromise of devotion to the Lord. To Jesus, the righteous judge, the physical immorality is simply a symptom of inner defiling. Where some of these congregants have removed Jesus as the object of their worship and they've settled for something lesser, believing the lie that there is room in their hearts for both Jesus and idols. And Jesus refers to the teachings of Jezebel as the deep things of Satan in verse 24, which could imply a number of things. 
It could mean that Jezebel was presenting her sinful indoctrination as actually the deep things of God, a phrase Paul would use throughout his epistles to describe the wisdom of the Lord. Or it could mean that Jezebel was claiming that the church needed satanic means to enlighten their knowledge of God. Much like Satan himself in the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden deceived Adam and Eve into believing that same thing when they would eat from the forbidden tree. And despite what the prophetess Jezebel may have been propagating in this church as advanced teaching, there is nothing in the character of the righteous judge who would condone or make a passing glance at this fundamental offense because of their intentions. Just as he dealt with sin when it first entered the scene in the garden, he is going to address it here. In her book, Blessed, Nancy Guthrie, she's going to offer a stone-cold stunner of a quote here. And speaking of the prophetess Jezebel and her seduction of the church, really buckle up. I have to wonder, when encouraging them to go ahead and participate, did Jezebel perhaps add, Jesus knows your heart, suggesting that Jesus would judge their hearts to be in the right place even when their bodies were invested in sexual immorality. If so, in a way she was right. Jesus did know their hearts. His eyes like a flame of fire saw into their souls to see exactly what their hearts were like. And what he saw was not innocence and good intentions, but spiritual adultery worthy of eternal punishment. Sexual sin is spiritual adultery. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. No one can persist in sexual sin and adultery, excusing it as either unchosen orientation or basic human need, assuming that God knows my heart and will forgive me, and expect that he or she will not be burned by the fire of God's anger. Yeah. No attempts of trying to outperform our sin, pretend like it isn't a big deal, or clinging to good intentions are going to st- stall or deter the discerning gaze of Christ on what's truly in our hearts. And Jesus is clear here that there are real consequences in refusing to turn from sin and carrying on in this hardened defiance as we look at a rewired understanding of sin's consequences. So going to verse 23, which ends with Jesus proclaiming that all the churches, not just Thyatira, are going to go through this spiritual MRI, and he will deal out judgment in accordance with the results of the scan. Judgment is both uh, in the here and now, and if we look at how this letter ends in a lot of other passages in Revelation, judgment that is also final. Hopping back to verse 22, Christ is pretty clear about the consequences the prophetess Jezebel and all of those who commit spiritual adultery with her are due if they do not repent. Jezebel will be thrown onto her deathbed. Her children will be struck down. And all of those who keep picking up what she's putting down are going to be put into great tribulation. There are aspects of this judgment that may seem disorienting. I know it was to me reading through the first time here. But first, I think it's worth noting that, again, this judgment is not instantaneous as this letter is being read. Um, side note, it's interesting to think about Jezebel maybe being there actually when this letter was read and how awkward that would be. Um, but the judgment's not dissed out instantaneously as it's being read to Jezebel and her followers. Jesus is going to give them a chance to respond by turning from their sin and turning to him. However, it is also worth pointing out that the promised judgment to the prophetess Jezebel, if she remains unrepentant, is identical to the judgment Queen Jezebel occurred and kings for her wicked tolerance and deception. Queen Jezebel had a gruesome end. You can read about that in 2 Kings 9. Probably not going to be an activity page for that one, but you can check it out. And uh, yeah, 
So she has a pretty rough end there. You can read about it. There's some dogs involved. Um, but we are also told that her children are struck down too. Additionally, the Israelites are going to continue to wrestle with tolerating idolatry and they'll suffer through much tribulation as they waver between two opinions. Now, while what Jesus is saying will happen in Thyatira, it may mean literal children being struck down. But I think the message here is geared towards all and any who identify with Jezebel's false teaching that one can indulge in the sins of the flesh without damage to the spirit. Whether that is her literal offspring she is raising in a household built on these lies, or spiritual offspring that are scarfing down the moldy man as she keeps feeding them, judgment is promised. You see, there are two kinds of spiritual offspring, kind of following that idea of spiritual offspring. There's two different kinds present at the time of the reading of this letter to the church in Thyatira. There were children of wrath, and those that had been children of wrath but were adopted into the family of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul is going to tell us here that those of us who have been raised from death in our sin to being made alive with Christ have a seat in eternity next to Jesus. But Paul also tells us earlier in the letter to Ephesus there that those of us who are sitting there are sons and daughters that God the Father predestined for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, when we get to the back end of our Revelation series in probably 2047, we will see that we are seated there in the heavenly places for a marriage supper between Christ and his bride. Spoiler alert, we the church are his bride, if you haven't already picked that up. So we are the bride, those who have been adopted into God's family for the purpose of being eternally united in marriage covenant with our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, Jesus. So imagine Christ discerning the hearts of those in Thyatira, whom he shed his blood for on Calvary, faced and defeated the death he deserved, and purchased their place in his father's family so that he could then invite them to the most glorious, spectacular wedding of all time, their own, where Jesus would call them his bride for all of eternity. Imagine how much his heart broke to see those in that fellowship hitting return to sender on the wedding invitation forsaking their identity as children of God and placing themselves under the same wrath he had died and resurrected to save them from. Jesus loves them enough to call their idolatry what it is, where it is leading them, and the rewiring of their hearts that is needed through repentance. His examination is honest, which is so loving. Brothers and sisters, are we claiming an identity as sons and daughters of the King that we are not walking in? Are we asking Jesus to show us what's really inside of our hearts? Are we blind or hardened to the spiritual adultery in our lives we are committing against our groom, Jesus? 
And maybe the thought of having the discerning eyes of Christ evaluate our most private thoughts and inner motives makes us feel like Bolton for the exit. But I want us to be encouraged that we can look to the character of Christ and see how actually opening ourselves up to this examination leads to freedom. As we look at the rewired view of freedom we need. Eugene Peterson in Hallelujah Banquet when writing of the gaze of Christ states, there is mercy and generosity in the honest, unflinching gaze of our Lord. If his look burns, it is the fire of love, and it burns so that it may warm us. So we've seen how the fiery eyes of Jesus prescribes judgment to the unrepentant. Let's now look at what this gaze offers to those of us who are open to its examination. So we're going to discuss how the gaze of Christ is sympathetic, loving, and freeing. I'm going to work through these fairly quick. So let's look first at how the gaze of Christ is sympathetic. In order to look to that, I want us to turn the uh, clock back a little bit biblically to the Gospels, where Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It's worth noting here, right, in this temptation that Jesus is presented with, all the the three temptations he's presented with by Satan, um, what Satan is trying to get Jesus to pursue are not evil ends, and are actually things that Jesus would arrive at um, himself. Jesus would perform miracles of provision. Jesus would defeat death through his resurrection after his crucifixion. And Jesus would ascend back to his heavenly throne where he would rule and reign over all kingdoms seen and unseen. The problem is, is that all of the means Satan was trying to entice Jesus to go about achieving those ends would have diminished his dependency on the Father deviated him from the mission his father had called him to and defiled his divine authority given to him by his father by placing Satan as supreme over him. The ends did not justify the means to get there. But Jesus was tempted to live that way as Thyatira was tempted and living that way. The same thing we are tempted to do, which is justify our sin because of the ends we believe we are achieving. The encouragement is that the look that Christ gives each one of us is from a high priest who is able to sympathize with or have deep understanding of our weaknesses because he in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never calls his disciples to endure or withstand any temptation to compromise that he hasn't already endured and withstood himself. He has eyes of true compassion and understanding towards the struggles we face. His gaze is loving. So knowing that Jesus looks at us with sympathetic eyes, it makes sense that his gaze is also full of love and generosity. Again, the first thing Jesus' look at Thyatira led to was a commendation before a correction. His correction and call to respond only comes first from a place of deep love for his church. He wants to see them persevere till the end. He does not want to see them tap out, give up. If we don't approach honest and difficult conversations with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ out of a place of love, then we run the risk of communicating all we care about is that the other person changes or gets with the program. Instead of communicating a deep desire that we should be communicating, which is to know, love, and care for each other holistically. If that comes difficult for us, read through the Gospels. See how Jesus does this over and over and over again. Think of the rich young ruler when Jesus encounters him. Before he puts the finger right on where the idolatry is in his heart, it says that he loved him, that he loved him and then brought correction. Jesus' gaze is, is loving. And it's also freeing as well. In verse 24, 
Jesus addressed those Christians in the church of Thyatira who have not given weight to the teachings of Jezebel. And his instruction for them is much shorter. He says, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Jesus' encouragement to the believers remaining faithful to him in the midst of the pressures to compromise and tolerate sin is simply to remain faithful. There isn't a long spiritual to-do list or some next-level knowledge they need to attain, um, which is tough for us, and I think we can struggle with this kind of tension because we, we easily believe the lie, right, that confessing the deepest, darkest parts of our thoughts and inner sinful motives to God and others will result in loads of burden and condemnation being heaped upon our shoulders. It'll be heavy if we do that for us. That's why we often opt out for what we feel like is easier in the moment, which is to do our darn best to conceal those dark parts of us, those innermost parts of us, where we think nobody can see it and nobody knows the real us. We lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that's freedom. That is not freedom. That is the worst kind of isolation and bondage possible. The beauty is that we are promised that if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus did not just die to atone for our external rebellion. He died to free us from bondage to idols wedged deep within our hearts and that overpromise and underdeliver for us continuously. We can either try to hide or justify those idols or allow the discerning gaze of our Savior to meet us where we are, reveal those idols to us, purge them out of darkness into light, and replace their dwelling within us with his dwelling within us. And when we do that, we can stand freely and confidently knowing that Romans 8.1 rings true, that there is no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And those who stand freely in Christ have conquered the compromise, and conquered the compromise of sin and remain faithful with him till the end are promised great reward. As we look at the reward, we are promised. So three rewards that are promised to those who conquer till the end. Authority over all nations, rule with a rod iron, and the morning star. Looking first at authority with all nations. So the promise to give to those who conquer um, authority over all nations, this is actually a direct reference to the end of Psalm 2, where God gives his son that same authority. So we see parallel again reference to Old Testament that we see continuously in Revelation. Now, Jesus is bestowing that same authority over the nations to his faithful servants and conquer and endure till death. Now, as we have, we've had throughout this series do this quite a bit, we'll keep having to do it, which is redefine our definition of conquering from a worldly perspective to an eternal one. The way of conquering that has been laid out here for the believers in Thyatira is one of standing firm on truth and in obedience to Christ in the midst of an abundance of pressure to compromise and tolerate sin. Conquering here, for the Thyatirans, what that looks like, um, it probably means not being able to work because of the compromise required. And that probably means struggling for food and basic provisions. Conquering is a road of suffering in this life, and it may feel like death. But that death that we feel results in resurrection and reward in the next life, which is the same path Christ himself walked in his conquering, right? In his death and his resurrection and his reward after his suffering. We are given the authority of Christ not because we do a great job of preserving our status, our influence, and a life of comfort, but because we are willing to lose it all for the cause of Christ, even to the point of death. And there, um, 
And the question we need to ask ourselves as we're evaluating this are, um, is, are there any deaths in our reality that we're not willing to die for the cause of Christ in order to conquer? And also thinking about authority, how are we using the authority we have been given in Christ now to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who need to hear it, just like we do? Let's look at the rule with a rod of iron. So the verse here specifically says, rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. So the Messiah, Jesus, he's prophetically portrayed as holding a rod or scepter. We see that in the book of Numbers. Um, Jesus knows that the only hope for this world, right, and society to truly change is for it to be broken down to its core. The brokenness here is, is not destructive, but it's actually a construction project, believe it or not. I mean, it makes sense, right? When there's an old building in town that's going to get torn down for something new, what comes in? Bulldover, bulldozers, huge equipment, other machines I don't know the names for. They all come in. They tear down that old building. They, re they rearrange the ground beneath it to make way for the new build. The rod of the Lord, which is referred to as an instrument of comfort in Psalm 23, is what will be used to both break down the old destructive patterns of the world and reform and rule something new. Brothers and sisters, instead of spending all of our time complaining and lamenting about how wicked and evil our world and society is, we, we love to do that. I'm there with you. Instead of doing that, though, let us shift our focus to remaining faithful in our convictions and obedience to Jesus so that we can endure in our faith and not grow in cynicism and we can see the new things that Jesus is trying to do. Let's look finally at the morning star. The morning star. So Jesus will do us a solid later in Revelation 22:16, and he will tell us that he himself is the morning star. Thank you, Jesus. But what does that actually mean? In Roman society, the planet Venus was actually considered the morning star because it would appear in the east right before sunset. Right? So when you saw Venus in the east, you knew the sun is coming. Sunrise, night is almost over. It was the sign everyone looked to to indicate that the dark, darkness of night was almost over. Roman emperors would actually claim to be descendants of Venus to lay claim to their authority. However, Jesus is being clear that he is the ruler of the world and everything beyond it. Unlike any emperor, political figure, or dignitary, Jesus can actually back up the claim that he has that kind of authority because he did bring an end to all darkness when he burst from the grave after three days, resurrected from the dead, and ascended back to his heavenly throne. The darkness of night felt long during those three days in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But Jesus, the true morning star, has come and is ruling and reigning over all things like we have talked about this morning, including our world today. But if we're being honest again, um, which is the only way to be here, the call to be faithful in trust and obedience to Jesus in the midst of the suffering we endure, the tension we live in, and the pressures externally and within to compromise makes it feel like we are still in those dark nights sometimes, right? That we're still waiting for morning to come. In 2009, there was a book that came out called Dear Me, A Letter to My 16-Year-Old Self. And uh, this is not going to be a book that if you read, I'll take you to coffee for. Sorry, Rod. <laughs> Uh, just to be clear, I know we, we offer that out a lot, but uh, instead, no, this book, uh, kind of a silly one, but it features a number of celebrities, Oprah, Stephen King, Hugh Jackman, you name it, writing letters they wish they could give to their 16-year-old selves. And the most common theme in all these letters, it's kind of funny, is that these people who feel like they made it, 
Um, they wish they could give their younger selves the foresight to know that all the difficulties and hardships and tough things, the breakups, all those things they're going through now will be worth it in the end. They're waiting. They want to give that letter to their younger selves so they can know, hey, it's, hang in there. It's all going to be worth it. This, I know how it pans out. Church, we don't have to wait for a letter from our future selves that isn't coming to assure us that the calling to endure that we have will be worth it. We have a letter we are reading right now from our risen Savior, our bright morning star, Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, telling us what the end of our story is if we remain faithful to him till the end, no matter what we face. If we allow the discerning gaze of Jesus to examine our hearts, respond to the sin that seeks to entangle us with faith and repentance, and we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus right where he has us, he will hold fast to us. Even when we feel like our eyes are growing weary, our, our, our grip is loosening, he will ensure his church perseveres to the end and has a place at the wedding banquet where he will delightfully call us his bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, um, we just thank you for your honest eyes, God, Lord, that uh, despite all the pretending and performing we tried to do to hide our sin, Lord, uh, to try to run, Lord, that um, we know that you see all. You know what's in our hearts, God, and that can be a frightening thing, Lord, but we know it's also a freeing thing. God, um, we thank you that what you see, you're willing to meet there, you're willing to remove, you're willing to redeem, and you're willing to restore, Lord, that if we confess our sins, you are faith, faithful and just, you will forgive us, Lord, that you will adopt us into your family through your Son, and that your Son, Jesus, is glad to call us his bride as the church. Lord, I just pray that as we walk away from this time reading your word, that we wouldn't walk away forgetting what we look like, God, but we would remember the truths you have spoken to us today, and that we would allow you, Lord, to discern our hearts, that we would respond in faith repentance, that we would be... Um, extremely mindful of the gospel and the means to which we are saved. We wouldn't try to work our way to it, but we would just hold open hands and surrender, God, and allow your grace and mercy to heal us, God, and free us. So help us to walk in that. Help us to endure where you have us, God. We may feel like the night is still going, but we know that the morning star Jesus has come, and he came as soon as he resurrected and burst from that grave. And we have reason to hope in the resurrection, Lord. So just be with us as this time of reflection um, as we participate um, in a family meal now. Lord, just help us to think hard about Jesus. In his name, amen.